Blog Talk Radio. the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and I'm happy to welcome the callers and chatters to research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. Well, tonight's show is about the emancipation of sage. The enslaved of the Keatley Plantation were buried on a small one-acre known today as Sage Chapel Cemetery. The owner of the adjoining land was a German immigrant and abolitionist Arno Krakow, who came to America in 1832. On January 11, 1865, Krakow would be the president of Missouri's Constitutional Convention who would sign the Missouri Emancipation Proclamation that freed the enslaved that were buried at Sage Chapel Cemetery and across the entire state of Missouri. Today, This beautiful graveyard still exists in the city of O'Fallon, Missouri, and is being placed on the National Register of Historic Places. Tonight's show is about the research behind the story and some of the stories that come from that research. My guests tonight are Doris Keevan Frank, and she has been researching history her entire life. My second guest is Mary Stevenson, and she is a descendant of family members buried in Sage Chapel Cemetery. So let me first give a warm welcome to both guests and then welcome Doris, who will start off sharing information with us about Sage Chapel Cemetery. Welcome, Doris. Thank you, Bernice. Thank you very much for inviting me to talk about Sage Chapel Cemetery. So why don't you tell us about Sage Chapel and just give us a little more history about this cemetery. Well, we know that the first ones that were buried there were slaves of Samuel Keesley, who had come to... About that, about that time, um, 
he um, had brought about 19 slaves with him, and they all were, um, um, many of those were buried probably right in that slave cemetery that existed on his farm. And then several years later, um, by 1871, Samuel had passed away, and by 1881, and it did take about 10 years to go through his probate because he had three wives and about 22 children. It took a lot to settle out that property. But by 1881, his daughter Mahala, who had married Dr. Jasper Cosley, she had um, acquired that property. And they came to her and they um, said that they wanted to continue burying there. And she deeded that to the trustees of a church called Sage Chapel um, Church. She deeded them one acre, which was for the cemetery, and a half an acre, which was further up the street, um, up the road, down the hill. And that one um, was a half acre that they built a chapel on. That chapel um, sat on one side, and they sold a half of it away to Liberty Abington, and that um, allowed them to pay off the $150 um, trustee deed. So um, that is how it officially began, but it um, had some tumultuous history. Jefferson Franklin Sage was a pastor um, for the African Methodist Episcopal Church that came out of um, St. Charles, and he traveled up to Jonesburg with his route. And um, he had gotten called to Kansas to preach uh, in the late 1890s. And for a little while, that caused a bit of consternation. And two of the other churches actually went for a bit and um, purchased another acre called, and called their cemetery Union. But eventually, they all three came back together, and they all um, three churches and even when the churches were no longer there, after about 1950, 1940 for some of them, even after the churches were no longer there, the community continued to bury in Sage Chapel Cemetery. Now, Doris, we do have a question from the chat room. Since you mentioned uh, slaves, where did Crickle come from and when did he uh, where did he bring the slaves from? Um, uh, the um, Keithley family came from Virginia through Kentucky, but from Virginia. The Crackle family, Arnold Crackle, he had come to the United States and arrived November 1st, 1832. Um, he had come to Missouri um, right off. His father, Franz Crackle, he um, was a friend of a writer that wrote a book about um, Missouri um, named Godfrey Duden. And Duden had suggested it. He'd even suggested that Kreckle wait until one of the immigration groups was coming. But he was very determined and stubborn, and he said, no, I'm going on by myself with my family. And he and his five children and his wife came on to Missouri and um, the children's mother passed away and was buried down in Kentucky because she died on the trip for. They came to Missouri, and they purchased land in the very, very southwest corner 
of St. Charles County, um, near what's called the town of Dusso, and it's right at the county line. In fact, their father, Franz, um, he bought on the St. Charles County side of the line, and his oldest son, named Gottfried, um, he purchased land on the Warren County um, side of the line. And they were um, strong Catholics. They went to St. Vincent de Paul um, Church in Jutso, and that's where both Franz and some of his children are buried. But Arnold, he grew up, and he um, went to school in St. Charles, which was at that time very much a um, school with a lot of the affluent slave-owning families in St. Charles County. He studied law. He studied surveying. And uh, he went on to become the city attorney and the uh, justice of the peace. But more than that, he went a lot further um, with the law and also established a newspaper, um, Der Democrat, which is the first German newspaper in St. Charles County as well. He went on to do a lot more things, too. Uh, yes, and we still have questions about, well, who were the slaves? Were the slaves who were found in the 1870s and 80s all born in Virginia, or were they from Missouri? Some of them were from Virginia. Some of them were ones that were born as late as when they came to Missouri. Of the 117 names that we documented as being buried there, um, 20 of them are were born enslaved. Some of the earliest ones, though, we only know because of Mary and Mary's stories and as they were passed down. And it's further um, established that those were probably buried there because their children there were later buried there and their grandchildren and so forth. So tell us what made you want to see this particular cemetery listed on the National Register and tell us some of the difficulties you discovered as you attempted to go through your your research. Well, I've been writing and researching but working for preservation for many, many years, probably 30 years. And about seven years ago, um, six, seven years ago, I was working in St. Charles as an archivist for St. Charles County Historical Society. And um, some um, of the um, police department from O'Fallon had come in and asked me the question, of who owns Sage Chapel. And the reason they were asking that at the time is the grass was overgrown a bit, and even though there may have even been signs there, for some reason one of the neighbors of that um, of the cemetery um, says that he did not even realize that there was a cemetery there. And it so saddened me. I had visited it with a friend of mine, George Abington, that day, and um, I went to see it, and it looked so forlorn, and it was so sad in the fact that nobody even seemed to know who owned it anymore. And it made me first determined to do that, and as I learned more about it, 
I really felt that it it deserved the recognition because there's so many places that have faded because they have disappeared because people have built over them and built roads over them and houses and things have disappeared through time. And here was this precious acre that was still standing there in the middle of a huge 88,000 people and still there to this day, very stubborn and very proudly. And that's touched my heart. Well, you have another question coming out of the chat, and you mentioned Mr. Abington. Is he yes. one? If is he one of the individuals whose ancestor was in the United States Colored Troops? This is the question from our guest. Yes, he 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 is. Um, he um, was in the U.S. Uh, 56 Colored Troops, um, and it was the fact that the St. Charles County Historical Society helped to establish who his grandparents were, which is what he wanted help with many years ago when he'd come in. And we were able to establish his family line. All four of his grandparents had been born slaves. And we were able to document his story. And then later on, um, I learned how the um, African American Genealogical Society of St. Louis had been, and another organization there, St. Louis African American Genealogical Society, had been working to, um, um, to put a monument at Jefferson Barracks in honor of those buried there, those 175 that had been buried there at Jefferson Barracks. And that over time and other situations such as moving had caused these, these soldiers to be unnamed and unrecognized. And it was thanks to Mr. Abington and coming forth because they needed a descendant to document that he wished for those to be named. When they placed that restriction on the groups in order to actually gain a monument, it was thanks to Mr. Abington, George, that they actually were able, he was able to help them obtain that. And he was very, very proud of that. Right. And Angela Walton Raji is indicating that she did a little bit of the family research and found the mm-hmm. pension file. Uh, and Sarah Cato was on on my show discussing the um, Jefferson Barracks. So thank mm-hmm. you for sharing a little bit of that history. Well, let's get back to a national registry. Now, why and how are cemeteries easily, or for that matter, is it easy to get a cemetery <laughs> listed as, on the national registry? The National Register um, only began as our Register of Historic Places in 1966. And I don't know that they really sometimes may have considered how um, difficult it would be, but it places the bar very, very high. That's what makes it special. And when they did this, they placed it that everything, of course, needs to be documented for the register in order to be listed on it. All your facts, it's, it's a hard process and takes a lot of research. And it was really hard for me in the sense that only dealing with documented history seemed to me to leave out 
the oral history of a group of people that had not been allowed to read or write. And here we were asking them to do that because cemeteries are very hard. It's only been about the last 10 years, in fact, that there have been cemeteries being added. For many years, if you even wanted to suggest um, nominating a, a cemetery that was like considered uh, churches and cemeteries were nearly impossible. In Missouri, the thousands of National Register listings only have still to this date, I estimate about 22 cemeteries, and only four of those are African-American cemeteries. So really, it's the very fact that it still exists is what partly makes it so special. Yes, it does make it special. Now, you mentioned that even with the documentation, it still does not allow for oral history. But how did you get about learning the oral history, and who did you turn to? Well, we had enough documentation, but we wanted to insist that it include the oral history because I knew a very, very special person um, who's been part of the community for so many years, and I've known for many years and was always so helpful and so sharing and so generous with her family stories and her photographs, and that was Mary Stevenson. Well, since you mentioned Mary Stevenson, I want to bring Mary Stevenson on. Mary, Mary, are you on? Yes, I am. Okay, so tell us about Sage Chapel Cemetery and, and actually what it meant to you and what it means to you. Well, I have five family members there. My uh, mother, sister, brother, grandma, and grandpa. And, you know, I can't miss being there. I always decorate their graves every Memorial Weekend. I don't miss it. I um, I can't. I don't know what will happen when I'm gone, but... I go up there every May and decorate their graves. That's your. That's definitely a, a, a memorial to to your family to remember them. Go there. I wish everybody could say that they would have opportunity to go every Memorial uh, Day and decorate the graves. So, who are your ancestors? You you mentioned uh, your mother and grandma and so tell us uh, uh what stories did you share with Doris about your family well i shared about uh my grandmother came from like Doris was saying from Kentucky as a slave there were more girls than boys when they, they were i can kind of remember my great grandmother was uh a slave and she worked out on the farms out near St. Paul and and O'Fallon in that area. And that's she tell my grandmother would tell me stories about my her experience and there were a lot of family members that I can't remember that she would tell me about. Cause, and most of the people were all related to each other in the cemetery. Mhm. 
So what did your grandmother tell you about her her enslavement? I'm sorry. I didn't hear what you said. What did your I'm, grandmother I'm, tell you? Well, she'd tell me about uh, the the slaves and about and she'd tell me stories about not being able to go places or do things. My and my grandmother was a very, very perfect seamstress and she she'd tell me she didn't go to school only to the third grade. But mm-hmm. she could sew like you have never seen before. She made my daughter her first little coat. My first daughter. She made her beautiful little satin white coat. Do you still have it? No. <laughs> <laughs> it, it probably is buried somewhere here. And then uh, my grandma married my grandpa in the 1800s. And... Uh, my grandpa was from St. Louis. His his mother lived to be 90-some years. I think she was 99 and could still jump rope. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, what were the, some of the names of the people that uh, you shared with Doris so that well, she could continue to do the research? The, my grandmother's name was Artie Michi Edwards. And my great grandmother's name was Frances Dry- Francis Letcher Dryden. And uh, um, my great grandfather, I think, had a son in the service named Uncle Freeman. But I can't remember. But um, my mother used to work, and she'd stay in the homes and work. She was was very seldom at home. My grandmother and grandpa really raised me. And mm-hmm. I went to I went to school in the house I was born in. Oh. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. And uh, and uh, yes. Continue what whatever other information you share with with Doris about your family so that it could help her better understand the community and about Sage Chapel. Well, Sage Chapel was taken care of by uh, uh, two servicemen, and uh, when uh, they when when they went to service, I don't know who took care of it then, but all the time, these two gentlemen, by the name of Billy Hayden and uh, uh, Pete White, I think it was his name, they took care of the cemetery, kept it cleaned and beautiful all the time. They were two two men that were in the service. And let's see what else. Um I I grew up in O'Fallon part of the time. I didn't come to O'Fallon until nineteen uh thirty nine, thirty eight, somewhere like I went to high school in O in um, Saint Charles. I would have to catch a bus from O'Fallon to Saint Charles to attend high school. That was in 1943 to 47. Okay. Well, thank you so much for sharing information with us about the cemetery, about your family, 
And we're going to take a quick break and then come back on and continue to talk about the cemetery and the process that you went through, Doris, to get this cemetery uh, on the National Registry. So we're going to take a quick break, and then I will have uh, Cecilia call in. I hope she's she's going to be calling in to share an announcement with us. So just a quick break, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander-Bennett, and you can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, where I will have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy and history questions. Remember, all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. All of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and they can be downloaded from Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, TuneIn.com, and Stitcher.com. Well, you have been listening to Doris Kevin Frank, and you just heard Mary Stevenson share a little bit about her family. So, Doris, I have some questions coming out of the chat for you. Are burials still taking place at the cemetery? No, they're no longer being um, um, buried there. Um, the city of O'Fallon is um, is willing to take over the care and maintenance. They've been caring for the property for a number of years now, keeping it mowed and maintained. And like when trees have fallen, they paid for the removal of, of those, repaired neighbors' fences. So um, they're, um, they're happy to continue to do that. And um, they're, um, they're, they're just not will, willing to continue to use it as a burying ground. Okay. And then uh, tell us more about the National Register. You, you told us something, but what, what makes this particular cemetery so significant that your research was the, the very thing that got them recognized on the National Register? Okay. 
Well, in order to place anything, a building or um, a property, on the National Register, it's a long process. And in the state of Missouri, the first thing you have to do is approach your State Historic Preservation Office and you write an eligibility assessment. And they decide if they think that it is even a possible a possibility. And um, it's a very lengthy process from then on. We, um, I was helped by Justin Watkins and um, Amber Cox, who works for the State Historic Preservation Office. And we, um, it took several months of actually doing the actual research and writing and drafts because it's not just a matter of, especially with a building, you've got sticks and stones, you might say. You've got mortar, bricks. You've got architecture. In this case, in a cemetery, um, it was telling the story of these people and their lives and within the community that made it important because there are no other landmarks that um, are identifiable that look just like they did then that can still be found. So the very fact of the matter of, of, of the eligibility was a lot of that was placed simply on the fact of the stories that are told in the community and how it portrayed them still today and was tangible um, society's evidence for young people to learn about their history and their community and for everybody to be aware that this was part of their community, a very, very large part, I must say, up in, um, until about the 1960s. It wasn't until about the late 1900s and the end of the 20th century and turn of the century that um, O'Fallon was really booming and growing. And um, like so many places, when progress hits, those kind of things have disappeared. One of the other things that makes Sage Chapel special in my mind is the fact that Samuel Keasley's property actually is neighbored, um, is Arnold Kreckel. Not only was Arnold Kreckel his neighbor, though, and his land adjoined his land, um, it was he that bought in 1855 uh, 320 acres and placed um, and platted and registered those 320 acres in the county recorder of deeds office. And he made his brother um, the postmaster and the station agent and set up and established the town of O'Fallon, the very same town that it could have disappeared into. Um, was probably it's the culture of those Germans who were great emancipators and abolitionists who led the colored troops, who did all those things that actually um, were those neighbors in that community. Um, there are There's one family that shared um, their home with me the other day, and they tell the story of Arnold Kreckel actually visiting um, the Heald House that um, – was is in Fort Zumwalt. It's it's in the city park of of O'Fallon, and actually after the Emancipation Proclamation, which happened on January 11th, thanks to Arnold Crackle, that he went and visited the um, the um, the slaves that were there at the Keithley Plantation and promised them land and help um, in his part of O'Fallon if if they wanted. He was willing to give that to them. He was very, very, um, very good about things like that. He, um, 
did a lot for the enslaved. He also was part of those that founded Lincoln University here in Missouri, which is the first African-American college founded by the um, 50, the 65th. So um, he's done a lot. So did he emancipate any of his slaves? He had one uh, gentleman slave that was emancipated before in emancipation. And there's a question out of the uh, chat again, and there's a headstone where the deceased was born in 1812. Was that person born enslaved, Priscilla Admiral Ball? Priscilla Ball was, and her husband, David Ball, he was one of the enslaved of Keithley's of, on his plantation. And um, Priscilla, born during the War of 1812, um, she is the very first and the oldest headstone in the cemetery. And um, she, um, like I said, was born there then. And, um, yeah, she's got the very first headstone. She's not the first burial that we know of because that was the child of of. Roman Edwards, and that that child was born and died in 1898, but um, he didn't have a headstone when he uh, died. So Priscilla's is the first headstone. It's a beautiful headstone. And also, do you know if any uh, members of the United States Colored Troops are buried there? Not that we're aware of. I strongly believe, but I've not been able to document that Walter Burrell was. Um, I do believe he was a U.S. Colored Troop member. I've searched and searched for him. He is one, he is actually, I feel, buried there right after, and it's because of his um, death that they, um, that the Burrell family um, is one of the trustees that it's Walter's father, who's also named Walter Burrell, who's one of the slaves. Walter is one of the trustees of the AME church that gains the cemetery. So um, I think that was part of the reason of them approaching the Keithley family and wanting to continue the tradition of burying there. Now, Doris, I know that you, you mentioned there are like 37 headstones. But you actually have about 117 stories. Tell us where did those stories come from? Well, a a lot of research. Um, I had two people who helped me, Amy Steen and, and Justin Watkins, who searched thousands and thousands of all the Missouri death certificates, and they created a database um, for St. Charles County of all the um, African-Americans that were, um, that died in St. Charles County. Then we pulled out of those, um, those that um, were buried in O'Fallon and at Sage Chapel and some of the other names that sometimes Sage Chapel was referred to by other families. For instance, if a family um, was members of the Wishwell Baptist Church in O'Fallon, which was right near um, Sage Chapel, sometimes the family would literally call that the Wishwell Cemetery. And the same thing for Craven's Methodist Church, which was further up Sondran Street, where all the um, 
the um, community lived and often referred to as the hill. And that also had the black school and the colored oddfellows lodge on it. Okay. And an- another thing, when you you know talk about the register, mm-hmm. what kind of criteria are they looking for, and what criterion did you use to actually categorize how this particular application would be viewed? Well, it was it was registered as a cultural landmark, uh, a cemetery, and um, mm-hmm. as a cemetery, you do have to uh, document its times of significance. Its dates of significance that were applied to it was 1881 because of the deed, um, until a, uh, 1968 because that's 50 years ago from when it was being nominated. And Mm -hmm. um, the kind of criteria that you have to do, there's hundreds of questions, and you're asked everything from about the the community and the people, um, the size, the the actual legal description of the land, why it's significant, who the people were that make it significant, and and all their stories. We included several of the stories, um, but we had to apply three rules to each of the 117 that we supplied. They had to be documented in the form of either a headstone, uh, an obituary, or a death certificate, um, Mm -hmm. some sort of legal record. And as you know, that's not always easy. Death certificates in Missouri only really go back to 1910, and obituaries are seldom found, although we did find some. And you couldn't really actually call those obituaries because they were very sad stories, unfortunate incidences um, that Trevi Edwards and um, um, the uh, Deaker gentlemen, these, these were sad stories that were of house fires and um, um, uh, railroad incidents that these people had uh, died, so it's really not an obituary. It was a explanation of how they died. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And quite and often, so hours and hours of, went into that. <laughs> hours and hours, and then at the very, very end, we created a, a, a three-person panel of those of us who had worked on the documentation, and had to literally vote and um, explain why we felt that their names should be included or not. I mean, the hours of research, uh, searching all the cemeteries to make sure that it's not somewhere else, that it's not somebody else by the same name, that it is actually the person, um, what other family members are there, how how do we really feel certain because we didn't want to Please, somebody there that, of course, wasn't. And how did the uh, family members, other family members beyond Mary, uh, feel about the cemetery being identified as a national register of historic places? Well, um, that's um, there were some that, um, such as Booker, um, um, Nathan Edwards, that he literally... Um, came over and he was so helpful in the sense that 
he literally identified graves that we had seen that there were um, personal markers put there, little fences or statues or monuments of some sort, but we didn't always know a name. And he was literally able to share with us the names of of where his mother, his father, his brothers and sisters, um, several family members actually were buried. Unfortunately, not a one of his uh, family um, had literally headstones. But it was because of him sharing those stories, we were able then to search and make sure that we included them with records taken from the death certificates and the obituaries and such. So he was helpful that way. There were other members that I'm not sure how happy they are, but um, for the most part, I think um, everybody's been happy. And once again, we have this question. How long did it take again to just go through the research, identify all the individuals, pull out, look at the headstones, death certificates, obituaries, and then tell the stories? Well, we started in the fall and uh, in about late September of 2017, and we submitted on November 3rd, 2017, the eligibility assessment. We found out in December that it was um, eligible, and we were working on it from that point on. Um, We had first hoped to submit it in May of 2018, but we didn't feel that um, we had everything that we wanted to share. We knew that we had been learning so much about it, gaining so much documentation, that we really didn't feel that the research was complete, and we were right. Because as we researched it and talked to more people and delved into the records, we learned a lot about the history of all the churches and all the community. And as we learned one thing, it sort of led us to another and helped us to understand even better. And so Mm -hmm. it wasn't until August um, that we were actually able to present it at the State Historic Commission um, for submission. And it's only after you present it to the state of Missouri and um, ask for it to be submitted to the National Register, that commission votes and decides if they feel that it is worthy and that it is well enough written and well enough documented. And um, we had a unanimous um, uh, decision that day But even then, it goes up to the National Park Service after all Mm -hmm. the T's are crossed and I's are dotted. And so it's quite a lengthy process. And does placement on the National Register bring bring any kind of protection to the site? Well, ironically, if, if you have a commercial building, it will sometimes gain you tax credits. Um, there are different tax credits in the state of Missouri and federal tax credits, which are being affected as we speak. But besides the tax credits, um, the, the biggest thing is recognition that this property is significant in our country's history. Mm-hmm. And so uh, was there a special uh, ceremony held when the cemetery received the designation as the National Register? 
We just received um, the official letter a few weeks ago um, at uh, in December. It was actually placed November 13th, and um, the state has officially um, shared its letter with the city of O'Fallon, the mayor of O'Fallon, and the Historic Preservation Commission. Um, the city of O'Fallon um, has not done anything to um, to uh, share any. Um, put the monument, uh, put the plaque in the park, you might say, that hasn't happened yet because it will mm-hmm. be part of the O'Fallon Park System. Oh, okay, part of that system. Now, so do you have, uh, if you know, you, you laid out some steps, and I'm just wondering if individuals uh, know of cemeteries in their own community would you recommend that they go through this process to have their cemetery designated as a national um, historic place? I would highly recommend that they contact the State Historic Preservation Office, which is part of the Department of Natural Resources, and um, share their cemetery story and share that with the uh, state office, they do have people there on staff that work on on the cemetery database all the time, and they would be the best to um, um, explain to them the process and determine if it was eligible. Okay. So we are getting close to the end of the show, but do you have any additional information you feel people should know of about well, your research. Well, I I really um I really feel that it's very um good example of how a community that cares, I I I do feel that a large part of the O'Fallon community had from the 1850s on been influenced in 1840s, been influenced by the German migration that happened in Missouri, and um, that some of that culture is what helped to preserve um, O'Fallon's landmarks. And it's it's of those people that that should be credited, it's that whole community, um, that they didn't do like happens in so many places and that a city of that size to be willing to take on and to make sure that it's preserved for future generations and can be seen as an example, um, that's very, very special. That's important, and I I think that's the greatest part of the story. Right. And another part of this story, because you have done all of this research, do you have a document that family members would be able to read to to learn more about the history of the cemetery and of the community? Yes. Um, we actually have a website, sagechapel.com. And if you go on the sagechapel.com website, we've placed the stories of the people that have headstones, 37 of those. Those have been um, placed on the website. And the link to the National Register, um, the the whole listing, that that's there to be read. The history of the cemetery, the history of how the community has carried, carried about it, and also a listing of all 117 of them and the names that um, 
were born enslaved are highlighted. Okay. And so you you have a, a, a compliment uh coming out of the chat room. Congratulations on your hard work to obtain this designation. So I'm Thank hoping you. that uh we'll get a call in from Cecilia to tell us about an event that's coming forward. If not, would you be able to tell us about the uh, production, The Face of Love? Yes. Um, I was hoping that Cecilia could share She's that. She's here. Okay. Oh, great. I think this – hello, do you have a question or a comment? Yes, this is Cecilia Nadal on the line. <laughs> hello, I was looking for you earlier. Welcome oh, well, to – I actually <laughs> rang earlier. And, uh, oh, and okay. nothing happened, so I'm not sure okay. what happened. Okay, you press one. <laughs> yes. Okay, so tell us about the face of love. I'd be happy to do that. First of all, I want to congratulate Doris for having the tenacity to point out the existence of this particular cemetery in a suburb of St. Louis that has never been seen as a place in which slaves lived. Um, I am not a historian, nor am I a genealogist, but I can tell you as an African-American sociologist that the significance of this happening in a place like O'Fallon is really very extraordinary. No longer can we, those of us in St. Louis and the city, say that there's not an acknowledgement of the history that exists in some of these bedroom communities that are frankly predominantly European. So her revelation of Sage Chapel with the history and pointing out what's there is very important. The second thing that uh, Doris mentioned, which I think is is fabulous, is that the Germans from the very beginning um, sort of coddled this happening um, so that there was some protection of the slaves who were there. And Arnold Krekel uh, was a German immigrant, and yet he stood up and stood out for the rights of um, African slaves and freedmen to be eman- to African slaves to be emancipated. Um, I am going to be sponsoring a symposium called "Faces of Love: The Common History of German Immigrants and African Americans in Missouri." And we're going to bring together the two largest ethnic groups in St. Louis to talk about that history and to tie it to where we are today. As you well know, St. Louis is the place where we had the Ferguson protest. And there is a concern that we take every opportunity to use the past to inform the present. And talking about that interface between Slaves and the German immigrant community and abolition is a very important thing to happen now with our constituents that are Germans uh, that have no idea of that history and African-Americans who don't know that history either. So on February 23rd, um, and anyone can go to our website at Gitana, G-I-T-A-N-A-Inc.org. It is a free program, and we're going to have the Consul General of Germany there, along with a number of other people. It is a time to learn a lot about the past 
and, and hopefully celebrate the future. And is this going to be broadcast or it's, it's just a live uh, symposium? It, it, it's a symposium and a community engagement project. So in addition to having historians there, including Doris, um, we have two African-American, one African-American historian, Dr. John Wright. We have Reverend Starsky Wilson, who was actually appointed by the governor um, to be the commissioner for the Ferguson protest and to look into the issues that happened in Ferguson. And then we have the two German representatives talking about that history. So it will be very balanced and it will be very engaging. Uh, in fact, we will present a preview of a play that we're doing about German abolitionists in Missouri. Okay. Well, it might be a good idea to bring everybody on Blog Talk Radio so we could hear a little bit more about it. What do you think? <laughs> I think that's a great idea. It's a heck of an organizational feat, though, to get them all there. But I think it would be wonderful if that could happen. Um, I think that would be wonderful, too. I hope that people will register for, for this because it's going to be a wonderful event. Okay, well, those of you in, in St. Louis, please, please, please attend this event and then tell us more about it. Thank you so much, Cecilia, for coming on. Well, Doris, It was my pleasure. And, Thank you. Okay, Doris and Mary, do you all have any parting words before we end the show tonight? Uh, thank you for allowing me to share some of my history. Oh, thank you so much for coming on to share with us. And Doris? Bernice, Bernice, I want to thank you for allowing us to share with everybody what a special place Sage Chapel Cemetery is. It represents such an important part of our history, and it's so wonderful to see everybody celebrate that history and learn from it and enjoy it and share it and understand it. It's very good. Thank you. Well, well, thank you. Thank both of you for coming on tonight to sharing this information with us. I hope that you can serve as an example and inspiration to the listeners that pass by old cemeteries and maybe they'll stop and think and say, wait a minute, there's history here. This 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 is something that we need to find out more about and tell that story and do the research that needs to be done so that that cemetery could get the same recognition. So thank you so much. And, you know, I just want everyone else to remember your ancestors left footprints. And you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, such as what Mary provided to Doris, family records, and research at the National Archives and beyond. You can continue this discussion on the research at the National Archives and beyond and the Afrogenius Facebook pages. And also remember to listen to the African Roots podcast with Angela Walton Raji, and also watch for the Black Progen Live with host Nika Soul Smith. Thank you so much for joining research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio, and I look forward to all of you joining me next week. This is your host, 
Bernice Alexander Bennett. Good night, everyone. Good night, Doris and Mary. Good night. Good night. Thank you. Thank you.